Well, welcome to my 11th segment of this apologetic series that we're going to be going through. We've got two verses today that we're going to um, walk through and hopefully bring a fuller understanding to. Um, now, both of these verses can have some implications that when you remove the context from the passage, the implications can still have an element of truth to it. So it's not like these are just completely heretically taken today and, and just people just run you know wild with these verses um, without any semblance of truth to them. However, when we allow a shred of um, just, a, just any semblance of untruth, to be opened, a portal opened to untruths within the context of a passage, then we, we run the risk of not only ourselves being led astray within our own flesh, but we also give entrance to the devil to come in and begin to lead us astray into deeper things, into bigger things. And, and here's what I mean by that. If I'm not careful, I can read a passage and strip it of its context and make it say something that it doesn't really say and it still has a little bit of truth to it. But then that untruth could piggyback on another untruth and lead me deeper into untruth. And so it's really important that we make sure that we understand the, the dynamic of passages by keeping the context of that passage within it. And I'm going to say that because in the first passage we're going to go over, it's Matthew 18, 20. It's a verse that I've heard ministries based off of this concept in which is where two or three are gathered. And so we'll have ministries called two or three or whatever it might be. And we think that there's this concept of fellowship that's there with the two or three. And that we need to have two or three. And if we have two or three, then we can have fellowship with the Father and and. We can actually venture into things that I've heard as of the last several years where online church has become a big thing. And people say, hey, if I've got two or three people in my living room and I'm watching a service, I'm having church. Because where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. And that's a really dangerous one. It kind of goes into the concept of what I'm talking about. That if you give just the smallest degree of entrance of untruth into a passage it can lead you into other areas where it becomes untrue because here's the deal if you don't have a body of elders then you're not really a church that Jesus recognizes like you might have a person who's an, uh, an authority you might have a person like what it talks about in Crete where Paul says that I'm, or I'm, I'm commanding Titus to remain in Crete to establish elders in every single church in Crete because as of yet, they had just been these, this small body that was raising up all throughout this 3,200 square foot mile island. In which churches were popping up all along this island. But they didn't have elders. They had maybe a person who was in charge or, or maybe they had a couple people who were in the charge. But they didn't have a body of elders. So let me just tell you. If you're, if you're using this passage to say that you can gather in your living room. Outside of a body of elders and that's your church and you don't actually have to go and attend church. You don't have to be in community. You don't have to fellowship in person with other people. Then let me just tell you, you're missing the point and you've wandered off in untruth because you've stripped the context of this passage. So we're going to go through and we're going to look at what is the context of this passage. And it's actually going to prove what I just stated to you about the concept of church authority. Here's what he says. 
<clears throat> I've already quoted the verse to you, but I'll read it again. Matthew 18, starting in verse <clears throat> 20, excuse me. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now I'm going to back it up, as is our custom in going through these passages. I'm going to back it up to get the context. I'm going to back up into verse 15. I want you to pay very careful attention to what the context is, because you won't find anything about fellowship. You might, you might be able to have a concept of fellowship being broken because of sin, and you're not being able to have a, an equal yoking with somebody because they're walking in darkness and maybe you're walking in light, as First John 1 talks about, that you can't have fellowship in that capacity. But this is not about fellowship. This is about church authoritative discipline. Listen to what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if it does not listen, take one or two others, which brings it to two or three, just pointing that out, along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, still keep in the context, if two of you agree on anything about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, <clears throat> if you're being honest with yourself into the context of this passage, you would see very, very clearly that the concept is about having two or three establishing a charge, which means a complaint, a violation of some sort in which somebody has broken something in which it needs to be remedied, in which there needs to be maybe judgment put upon it. This traces back even into the law in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, in which he says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses, or uh, I'm sorry, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. This is about somebody who has sinned against God and against his people. It's somebody who's part of the church. It's somebody who has done something and violated what God has asked of them to do through our Lord Jesus Christ and the example of Lord Jesus Christ. And it's what James 5.20 talks about, 19 through 20. If anyone among you wanders from the way of truth, let him know that whoever brings back a wanderer will save his soul from death. This is about somebody who is in the church, who has violated what it means to be a Christian and are, is walking in a way contrary to that in which God calls us to walk in Christ. And he says, any charge against that person must be established with two or three witnesses. A single person will not suffice in that. You can go look in 2 Corinthians 13.1. You can go look in 1 Timothy 5.19. And you can go look in Hebrews 10.28. And you're going to find that all three of those passages uphold the same concept that no charge can be established except on two or three witnesses. This is not referencing fellowship. This is referencing church discipline. So can we please stop using this passage as a fellowship passage? Because here's the reality. If you look in Matthew and 28, 20b, 
It's right after Jesus gives them this commission to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And he goes on to the very last thing. He says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let me just tell you very point blank right now. To have fellowship with the Father requires one. Because I could go be put in prison and, and put in a 30-foot hole down in the ground in darkness for an entire year like Richard Warmbrand was. And I can have fellowship with the Father. I don't need two or three. I can have fellowship with the Father because of one. And that means simply that Christ abides in me and gives me access unto the fellowship with the Father. I don't need two or three other people to be able to call upon the name of the Lord and have His presence be with me. He is with me wherever I am. But to establish church discipline, to purge leaven from among you from a church fellowship, that requires two or three who are in a position of authority, which I believe... To be a church that is in its fullest expression of what God desires. I'm not saying an upstart church. I'm not saying that maybe there's one person and you're working towards things. I'm saying to be the fullest expression of God's church. It requires at least two or three elders. Because if you do not have a body of elders directing and governing the affairs of the church. Then there's certain things that they don't have the authority to do. And that might be news to you. But there are certain things, there's a reason why God has it as part of his blueprint for there to be a body of elders. If you are part of a system and you are not working towards having at least two or three elders and you're part of a system that has one man in charge. Say you're part of the Baptist system where it has uh, one pastor and that pastor is kind of the head over everything. And what he says gets to go. Then you're part of a corrupt system that is not built on the foundation of the word of God. Remember what Jesus did when he sent out his disciples? Did he ever send them out individually? Or did he always send them out two by two? He always had two. Because to call upon the name of the Lord for whether it be for miracles or church discipline or some authoritative structure, there had to be at least two. Now in the Old Testament, you could have lone prophets. But in the New Testament, you don't find Lone prophets just walking around on their own accord. You find at least two. We're going to go into Matthew chapter 16, 18 through 19. Because I want you to see something real quick. And this is one of those things again where if you're not careful you can actually be led into, into some things that are um, erroneous teachings. That are absent of the fullness of the text. Matthew 16, 18 through 19. You might recognize this passage. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, if you're a Catholic, you're going to see this passage as it's stating that uh, Peter is the first pope and he's going to have the authority of the church and he's going to be given the keys to the church and he's going to be given everything for the church. Well, let me just tell you, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that the church is built with Christ as the cornerstone, built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets. It is not just on Peter. And so this foundation which the church is built upon is not talking about Peter. 
It's talking about the concept of faith, which is why it says it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, referencing faith. That proclamation that right before it, contextually speaking, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they say, they, you're, you're a prophet. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered. And because Peter answered, he responded to Peter. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, and it's upon that proclamation that the gates of hell will never prevail. It is upon faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that the gates of hell will not prevail. But what I want to point out here is, again, one, show you an illustration that if you're not careful, you can be led into some erroneous beliefs if you don't keep the context in the passage. But I also want you to see it says this, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's an authoritative statement. You have the keys. Through this faith, you have the keys. And I'm going to show you in a little bit, it's not just Peter. I mean, if Ephesians 2 was enough to clarify that for you, that was the apostles, not just one man who is above the apostles. Peter did not lead the apostles. He was an equal member of both of them. This is why Paul, as an elder, was able to call out Peter in Galatians chapter 2. And it says that he stood as a man condemned. So he called him out in front of everybody. But he says, you've been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. By the way, that word for you, I believe is a plural form of the word you. Meaning that he's not just speaking to Peter here. And he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Does that sound familiar? Because didn't he say the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 18? What did he say? Um, Truly I say to you. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's authoritative passage. You look at John twenty twenty three, in which he talks about a very similar concept. The very first thing that Jesus did when he came back after his resurrection, after his glorification, which he had been glorified. Okay, He had conquered death. Everything was fulfilled. Everything was done. He had been glorified. The only thing yet to do was he had not yet ascended to his father. The first thing he does in John 20 verse 22 says this. And he had said these, this, he breathed on them and said, receive the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Which by the way, this is plural. This is not just to Peter. This is to all the, the apostles. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withhold. If whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And that's through the authority of two or three. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 3 through 5 classic uh, passage that almost made the cut for being abused and twisted today and and maybe more so not as abused or twisted but neglected you have this passage which Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says look you've got this guy among you who's having his father's wife and and you guys are arrogant about it he uses the plural form of the word you he's not talking about singular he's not saying that the guy is arrogant who's committing these scenes he says you're arrogant as a church Because you're letting this happen. You're thinking that you don't have to do anything about it. That you're entitled to say, you know what, we're just all under his mercy and his grace. So we just can't go out there and exercise church discipline. Because you know what, we're just above that. He says you're arrogant about it. So he says, this is what he tells them to do. 
starting in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So he says, I've already given my judgment on this. So here's what I'm telling you to do. As you congregate together as a church, this person is unwilling to repent. The one going to them didn't work. The two or three going to them together didn't work. So now it's being brought before the church. And the church and the church leadership needs to do exactly what I'm stating because I'm commanding you through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that this is what you do. Here's what he says in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Didn't he say earlier? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He says it right here in verse 5 or verse 4 of chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You are to purge the leaven from among you. When you are assembled together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the authority of two or three. You are to take this person and deliver them to Satan. Let me put it in another way as Jesus put it in Matthew 18. When it says this. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. People who had, they had nothing to do with them. You deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. You are to have nothing to do with them. This is what he goes on and talks about at the very end of 1 Corinthians 5. If anyone bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's impossible to look at this two or three concept and think that it's a fellowship passage. And yet many people do. But if we were to take an honest look at this passage, we would see that this is a passage about church discipline, church authority. It doesn't mean that if the church isn't doing anything about it, that you yourself need to keep away from those who are walking in error, as he tells us in Second John 1.9. It doesn't mean that you're, you, or you could even go into Romans chapter 16, 17 through 18. You don't have to have the church exercise this only. What I mean in all of that is to say, if the church is not doing anything about it, if you have somebody who is walking in accord with darkness more than they are with light, if you have a person who is unwilling to repent and they bear the name of brother, then you have a prerogative to, if the church is not going to do anything about it, you have a prerogative to do something yourself because you are accountable to God. So that means that you then need to keep away from that person. You don't have authority to exercise discipline or judgment upon that person. But you are responsible to stay away from that person. But in terms of church discipline and the authority to do so, where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is with them. And he gives you the keys to exercise that authority to bind and to loose. To forgive or to withhold it. To discipline for the sake of his name and the concept of holiness for his name. The next one that we're going to talk about is 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. Another passage that is a very, very popular passage and one that I think is very, 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 very misunderstood, misappropriated, which oftentimes is a result of misunderstanding um, and being misinterpreted. And again, there's some concepts of truth within it because in my weakness, yes, God's grace can abound. 
But here's the deal. Oftentimes people look at this passage. I've heard one of two things. One is that when I'm in the midst of sin. And I'm just wrapped down to the pits of sin. And I'm just struggling. Man, his grace is so much bigger. Can I just tell you? You're a heretic if that's exactly what you're teaching. His grace might be available to you for your repentance. But his grace is not covering you whenever you're doing that. I would encourage you to go look at Hebrews chapter 10, 26-31. In which he says that you're outraging the spirit of grace. When you walk in sin intentionally. So I'm not talking about somebody who's struggling. I'm talking about somebody who is intentionally walking in sin. And says, but you know what? His grace abounds. I've heard this. You might be thinking to, maybe you're thinking, whoa, that describes kind of how I've always taken this passage in 2 Corinthians 12 uh, verse 9. Well, then I would tell you, you need to repent because that is a heretical teaching. You can go look at James chapter 4, which I've heard the teaching as well and, and the concepts of that one. In which he talks about that anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And it says he yearns jealously of the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. And people take that to say, oh, man, you're really jacking up. You've committed spiritual adultery against God. You're making yourself an enemy of God. You're walking in a way that's not pleasing him. But you know what? His grace overlooks it. Praise God. No, his grace will empower you to overcome it. To repent, which is why he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He will give grace to the humble, not to the arrogant or to the proud. So, just off, off the top, let me just go ahead and tell you that if that's how you perceive this passage, you are very flawed in your understanding of both grace and what, he, and what this passage is interpreting. The other one that I've heard is that Paul was possessed by a demon. And that it was even in the midst of that that God's grace was prevalent and God's grace was greater. Let me just tell you again. I think that that interpretation is extremely flawed and heretical. And, and let me just tell you this. If you're listening to this and maybe you're... <coughs> excuse me. Falling into the camp of one of those two things and you hear me associate that with heresy. I'm not calling you an unbeliever. I'm not calling you a false teacher in the sense that you're just um, just completely trying to lead people astray. And you're an agent of Satan. And you're not really a Christian. I'm not saying those things. Heresy simply just means something that is taught that's not right. A heretic is somebody who teaches something that's just not right. So when I say that, I'm not saying that you're a heretic or that you're guilty of teaching heresy and that that just means that you're demonic and that you um, are in a coup with Satan to try to destroy. I'm, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you have something in your teaching that's not right. And it ne you need to repent. And so we're going to look at this passage. It's, you probably already know which one it is by now. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power. Excuse me, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So again, a lot of people take this one to state that um, in the midst of my sin, God's grace abounds. Let me just tell you, again, that is a heretical belief. Because here's the reality. Yes, when you are struggling with sin, God's grace can help you to overcome it. But that's going to require your humility. And you humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. So that he may exalt you at the proper time. First Peter 5, 6. 
Because here's the reality. If you are still bent on just saying, you know what? I'm just going to live in this sin and it'll be okay because God's grace will cover it. You will not have a shred of His grace. And you're like, but that doesn't make sense. I've always been told that grace is unmerited favor. Uh, Let me just tell you, those who have told you that grace uh, is solely just unmerited favor have led you astray. Because nowhere will you find the definition of grace as unmerited favor. I can show you two verses just in the New Testament that says that it absolutely is merited. You have to do something to get it. Unmerited means you don't have to do anything at all to receive God's favor. Grace has been freely extended to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We didn't do anything for God to say, I'm going to extend grace to you. But that access unto the grace by which we stand has come through Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you're not walking in Him, you don't have it. He also talks about it again in 1 John. If we are not walking in the light as He is in the light, then it says that you cannot have fellowship with one another and His blood is not cleansing you from all sin. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's our job to make sure that we have penitent hearts before the Lord so that His grace can be effective in us and applied to us. Grace is not God simply overlooking your sin. Grace is the authority and the power of heaven to overcome that sin. Now let's break down this passage and see what it's teaching. We're going to back up into verse 7. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, a very key passage or part of this passage is he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, this is not just referencing some physical thorn that was in his physical flesh. This is talking about the concept of the flesh and being that which is which is um, absent of the ability to accomplish God's will. This is why Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. I've already done a podcast on this one in this apologetic series in which many people also abuse that one. Paul says that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And so Paul says, look, in my flesh, there's nothing that I have the ability within itself to carry out what God wants of me. But that's why God gives us his spirit. This is why Galatians 5, 16, 17, in that range, he talks about, he says... But if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh to keep you from doing what the other one wants you to do. And I paraphrase that, but that's basically what it states. God didn't leave you as just a fleshly person. He gave you His Spirit to allow you to have another option. To have a choice to overcome that flesh. To where you don't have to listen to the flesh. Because if you choose to heed and walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But that's your choice of what you're going to choose to do. And you will reap accordingly, is what Galatians 6, 7-10 says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he'll also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. And then Paul goes on, and we will reap if we do not give up. you got to keep sowing to the Spirit. 
If you sow to the Spirit, then you will not gratify the flesh. And so Paul, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, there was a temptation in of himself to try to rely on himself. I think we've all been there. We all try to get, we get into a situation and we try to rely on our own strength. We try to rely on our own intellect. Oh, I think this is probably the best thing for my family. I think this is probably the best thing that I need to do. This is the best thing for my life right now. I need to go do this. And we're not even consulting God. And we try to rely upon our own flesh to maybe get us out of sin, to lead us and guide us. Things in which we want, let me just tell you, Galatians 5.24 says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its desires and passions. That means that at some point in your life, before you even got saved, before you could even come into this salvation and into this grace by which you stand, you had to have laid it all down on the line to say, God, my life belongs to you. I don't want to live for myself. I don't want my fleshly indulgences any longer. I'm crucifying that so that I might have your resurrection life within me. Jesus didn't come to just be your savior and save you from yourself. Jesus came to be your Lord. And if you have not submitted to him as Lord, then you are not saved. Because Romans 10 says that if you believe in your heart and confess him as Lord, you will be saved. He is not your savior until he has first become your Lord. So let's break down some of these things. Actually, let me keep reading the passage. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the, the whole scope of the passage. And here's essentially... Paul breaking it down for us. He says, look, I've gotten these um, revelations that are probably beyond what many people have gotten. And I understand things and have seen things that other people don't get. And I could have that truth, that reality, become a stumbling block for me. To cause me to become proud. To cause me to become arrogant and conceited, to use the word that Paul used here. And so what did God do in knowing that to keep me dependent upon him and not on myself? He sent me this thorn in my flesh. It was a messenger of Satan, not to possess him, but to oppress him. This messenger of Satan was oppressing him to keep him reliant upon God. And three times Paul prayed for this messenger to be gone. And what was it that was responded to him? And I want you to pay very careful attention. This is what was said to him. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power. I want you to to see the link in between grace and power. It's not Jesus saying, you know what, Paul, I understand your struggles. I sympathize with you. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 actually say that I can sympathize with you as a great high priest. So I'm just sympathizing with what you're going through and I'm just going to tell you, hey man, it's going to be okay. I overlook it. No, that's not what he's saying. He says, Paul, I know you're struggling and I know that this thorn in your flesh is there and that you're asking me to remove it, but I need you to see a bigger picture here. 
I need you to see that it's not about you and it's not about your ability. It's not about your sufficiency in and of yourself. Which is why I believe that earlier on in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he talks about it in the very same light in which he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Grace is what allows us to have the sufficiency of heaven. Not in ourselves, but in and through Christ. So Jesus responds and says, Paul, I know the bent of man that if you become fleshly that you're going to begin to rely on yourselves and I can't let that happen. So you need to understand and know how to rely upon my grace, my strength, my sufficiency. Not in what I've already accomplished for you on that cross so you don't have to do anything but what is available to you right now to overcome right now. That vice that you have in your life, Paul, you need to understand... It is through my grace that you will shatter that and overcome it. Not just muddle through it as just a sinner who is saved by grace. As many people just like to say today that they are. Let me just tell you something real quick. That's who you were. You were a sinner who was saved by grace. And grace was extended to you and to me through the person of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is there for those who bow the knee to Him as Lord of their life. Then you come into the salvation and we were sinners who were redeemed and we've been brought forth and we were given His Spirit that was washed over us so that it cleansed our past sins. And so now we can walk in victory as not even just victors, but as more than overcomers through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. That now I have an authority of heaven to be able to walk in, to be able to utilize through the spirit and the riches of grace that he's given to me through Christ, to walk a life in the image of Christ. No longer a sinner who just falls victim to sin, but one who has been given the authority of heaven to overcome and to walk in the image of Christ as a victor and as an overcomer. Because that's good news, but we don't teach that today. He says, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. And you're like, well, what is weakness? Let me define it for you. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm probably going to butcher pronouncing this word. But asaneia is the Greek word for weakness. And here's what it means. It means a feebleness of mind or body. And it's root word. Or uh, let me continue on that actually a little bit. Uh, a feebleness of mind or of body, moral frailty, and a lack of capacity. Okay? Its root word is asthenus, and it means strengthless or insufficiency or an inability. So, so if you look at this, oftentimes we think weakness is sin. That's not necessarily what this is referencing. This concept is inability. Alright, so let me read it again whenever he says it. My grace is sufficient for you for my my power is made perfect in your inability. In your insufficiency in and of your flesh. Therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my inabilities and my insufficiencies so that the power of Christ will rest upon me. Paul simply stating, I am resting in the fact That God has the power and he has supplied it to me through the person of Jesus Christ. So I will stop resting on my power and my strength, which won't result in a whole lot. 
The concept is so that Paul is not puffing himself up in his own strength. But he's actually deflating his morality or his understanding. He's deflating his uh, perception of his ability. He's deflating that so that his perception of Christ's ability will be inflated. The word for grace is the word charis. It means the divine influence or the favor of God, a strength or an ability of God. Notice you won't find unmerited favor in the definition of charis. Is there an aspect of unmerited favor? Absolutely. But it is not the encompassing definition of what grace is as many people paint it today. You're going to find the concept of power is a different word. It's not charis. It means it's dunamis is the Greek word that's used there. It means power and ability. It's a strength of heaven. A resolve and the grit of heaven that's been nestled in a son of man. It's something in which God has taken this man, this empty vessel, has emptied himself out for the glory of God. And he has then filled him and stuffed him with grace. Power, dunamis, the spirit of God, to live out a supernatural life if you're willing to humble yourself under his mighty hand. So I I believe that the thorn is actually referenced here. The concept of Paul's arrogance and his pride or his inflating of his own ego and his own ability, his own sufficiency in the flesh... In order to undermine that and to teach Paul that you cannot rely on yourself, you must learn to rely on me. He sends him this thorn. And I believe that a lot of people talk about how they don't know what the thorn is and how Paul doesn't identify the thorn. I believe that he does. Look what he says. For the sake of Christ then. Then is an indicator term. It's, it's linking what he's about to stay, say to a previous thought. For the sake of Christ then. <coughs> excuse me. I am content with weaknesses or the same word, athenia, the feebleness of my mind or my body, the insufficiency in and of myself in my flesh. I am content with knowing that that's there, that I am not a whole lot. That there's not much about me. That there's nothing good that's in my flesh. I can't achieve what God wants for me to achieve in my flesh. Because I'm powerless against Satan. And even against my own flesh. Who is desires for me. Sin is coming after me. Flesh wants, wants to rule the throne. And I'm powerless against it. But praise God. He's given me another authority. That I could heed to. And I can walk by and in It or in him, I have the authority to overcome the flesh. So for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weakened for the cause of Christ, let me just put it that way. Then I am strong for the cause of Christ. I believe the thorn that God gave to him was the sufferings and the trials that he was walking through and experiencing for the cause of Christ. And I believe that's what Paul was wanting a reprieve from. God, just give me a a breather, please. Just give me a breather. And God says, I'm not letting up. 
I'm not giving you a breather. I'm going to continue these insults and the hardships and the calamities and the persecutions and all these things you're suffering from the name of my son. I'm going to continue to pour those out upon you because I need you to stay in a frame of mind that says that you cannot do it in your flesh and on your own. You have to learn how to rely upon grace. Not as an overlooking your failures, but the ability of heaven to enable you to overcome those failures. Paul, I got to get you to know that in Christ, you have everything you need for a life of godliness. But that means you can't look at yourself. You've got to look to him. And these sufferings that you're going through are keeping you in a position of looking to him and depending on him. That's what this passage is all about. It has nothing to do with weaknesses being sin. It has everything to do with the weaknesses being of your insufficiency or inability to achieve the life that God wants you to live in Christ in yourself. That is impossible. What isn't impossible is achieving it through Christ. Because if you try to imitate Christ on your own strength, you will be a miserable replica of him. But if you allow the impartation of the Spirit of God to come into your life and to rule that throne and you walk by the Spirit and you utilize the Spirit's power that he's given to you, then you can actually imitate God. Because Christ is in you and he's pretty good at imitating God. So suffering for Christ keeps us mindful of our dependency on Christ, thus keeping us humble in Christ, the very thing that is required to receive grace. So it is this hamster wheel, if you will. The sufferings keep us dependent, that dependency keeps us humble, and the humble gives us the grace, the very thing that we need to keep going. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Who gives the strength? Christ does. That strength is the dunamis. It's the power. It's grace. 2 Peter 1.3 That his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to a life of godliness. Everything that we need for that life of godliness has been given to us. James 1, 2 through 4. You're going to find a very similar connotation to what he says here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And here's our job. Let steadfastness have its full effect in you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. What did he say here? My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, when you go through trials and you allow steadfastness to have its full effect in the midst of those trials, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, depending upon Jesus, and humbling yourself before the Lord, and you let it have its full effect, it will cause you to become perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. So this is the concept of the passage. And we can fight against it because we don't want to have to put in the work. We can fight against it because we don't want the responsibility. I'll tell you what, it is a lot easier to just say, okay, Christ did it all for me on the cross. Now I don't have to do anything because if I had any works to this salvation, then that's work-based. Let me just tell you, that's a lie from the enemy that's infiltrated the church. James 2 says it very plainly. You see, a person is not justified by faith alone, but by works. His faith was completed by his works. That's not simply a passage that's referencing. I've even got on my list. I'm probably going to be going over that one sometime soon. I've heard it taught 
that that justification is one before men, not before God, but I think that that is a far-fetched untruth that's being propagated in that. It's not anywhere even in the context of the passage. When you look at Romans chapter 5 and it says that we've been justified by faith, that means that we've been brought into a right standing from an unregenerated position to a regenerated position through the person of Jesus Christ. But if we want to remain in that standing all the way to the end, then it will require works that have to be supplemented to that faith. And it's not the proof of our salvation, it's the preservation of it. And if we endure to the end, then we will find ourselves justified in the end. So Romans 5 deals with the unregenerate man unto regeneration. James 2 deals with the regenerated man unto glorification. Can I say that one more time? And I I think we get these things mixed up so often because we don't keep the context of the passage. We think James 2 is referencing still unregenerate man unto the regenerate man. Romans 5 is the unregenerate man being justified in a regenerated state. James 2 is referencing a regenerate man being justified unto a glorified state. And as Romans 8.17 says, when Paul says that we will be glorified with him, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you notice the suffering thrown in there? That we have a job to do. And as Hebrews 10.36 says, that we have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, we will receive what is promised. And so James 2 is referencing a justified state in the end. Not a proof that we were justified in the beginning. And so the reality is, guys, this passage in, in Matthew chapter 18 is not one of fellowship, it's one of church discipline. And this passage in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is not referencing sinners who God's grace overlooks that sin. It's referencing a passage in which we have the authority to overcome that sin. And God needs to keep us in a perspective of our dependency being on Christ and on Him alone, not on ourselves. But through Christ, we have everything we need for a life of godliness. But the choice is up to us. Will we choose to keep our dependency on the flesh? Or will we put to death the things of the flesh so that we can walk through the power of the Spirit? The choice is ours. And God loves us too much to just say, I'll just let you do it on your own. He loved Paul too much to say, Paul, I know the tendency of man To want to be boastful in and of themselves. And so I'm going to send you the suffering. I'm going to send you the trials. I'm going to send you the persecutions for the sake of Christ. To keep you in a position of always having your eyes fixed on Him. And so hopefully this was a blessing to you. Taught you guys something. And um, is helping to equip you to understand contextually passages better. Because I can tell you there's a whole lot more. Never take the traditional teaching of man for granted and just say, well, they look smart, they sound smart, they really have some charisma on stage, they must be anointed. Let me just tell you, study to show yourself approved. And notice it's not before God, not before man, but as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, study to show yourself approved before God, rightly handling the word of truth. Y'all be blessed.